Well, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Shocking Lurid Tawdry, A History of American Scandals. I'm Mark Pikert. Casey Howe is not joining us today. She is sitting it out and enjoying a hard-won summer Friday. But that means that I have the great pleasure of introducing our special guest and getting to spend a, a little bit of time with him today. Uh, today, joining me is Bill Schaefer. He is the author of the brand new book, The Scandalous Hamiltons, a Gilded Age grifter, a founding father's disgraced descendant, and a trial at the dawn of tabloid journalism. And frankly, Bill, this is the Hamilton that I wanted to see on a Broadway stage. <laughs> he's, uh, he's uh, I would say, musical worthy. <laughs> so for those of you who are unfamiliar with this story, which I think is most people, unless you've read the book already, mm -hmm. uh, Bill, uh, what is the what is the kind of elevator pitch of what this scandal entails? Because there there's a lot. It's every 19th scandal rolled into one. 19th century scandal rolled into one. Yeah, it's as brief as I can be. It's a the story of a guy named Robert Ray Hamilton, who's a great grandson of Alexander Hamilton, um, was a New York State legislator, attorney, real estate de developer, a um, kind of known presence in New York society circles. And he got involved with a, um, a woman named Eva Steele, who was a, um, <clears throat> as it turns out, was a prostitute. They had a four and a half year relationship of convenience in a way. And she decided that she really wanted to be Mrs. Robert Ray Hamilton and hatched a scheme to uh, make that happen. So I knew right from the get when I got the advanced copy and you know, I mean, I have an entire podcast about scandals. I'm a big fan of scandals, especially the ones that we are less familiar with. Uh, and I knew that I was going to enjoy taking this ride with you, Bill, when I read the introduction and all of this came about because of the fountain, because you saw the plaque about the Hamilton Fountain on the Upper West Side. Yeah, yeah. I um, I live on the Upper West Side. I've, I've actually recently moved back there um, after being away from the city in Connecticut for 20 years or so. And um, uh, my wife and I took an apartment and I was performing one of those great New York City rituals, moving my car for alternate side parking and found a spot right at the corner of 76th and Riverside. And I got out. It was a January night. It was freezing cold. And I got out of the car and said, wow, that is a beautiful fountain. It looks like something you would see at Grand Central Terminal. I quickly read the Parks Department plaque, what you just kind of bullet pointed. And my, my real interest is as I was scurrying back home trying to get warm, was why is Warren and Wetmore designing this fountain in a fairly obscure kind of niche of Riverside Park? I do architectural uh, and design historical research for various entities and individuals. And so my interest in it really was from an architectural point of view. Warren and Wetmore were the designers of Grand Central, one of the most prominent, preeminent uh, architecture firms in New York in the in the in the country in the early part of the 20th century, and it seemed odd to me that they would be doing this relatively small and kind of obscure project. 
I got home and just my curiosity led to a Google search or two, Warren and Wetmore, Hamilton Fountain, and this scandal started popping up in various blog posts and short articles, none of them really um, consistent with each other, and none of them, as it turns out, telling the whole and actual story. So the kind of further, further I dug, I thought, there's got to be a book about this uh, out there someplace. I'll buy it and educate myself <laughs> about this. And when I found out there wasn't, uh, I took it upon myself to write it. So that's that's really how it came about, not from the scandal point of view, but from a architectural curiosity point of view. No, I, that's I mean, that's certainly how Casey and I find many of our scandals that we do week to week. It's yeah. just it'll be one line in some book, and you right. go, and then you fall down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. Yeah, totally. And then you find yourself going, wait, how does no one? But truly, uh, this scandal has everything that anyone could possibly want in a scandal you have as close to american royalty as there was at the time i right. mean to your point the hamiltons were the kennedys right yeah for in a many very, ways, for a very short ways, amount of time they were that the hamilton name had the same sort of uh, ability to kind of perk your ears up as the kennedy name does today for sure uh and now again thanks to Thanks to Broadway, Hamilton's right. back on the tip of everyone's tongue. Uh, but I mean, there's sex, there's violence, there's uh, prostitution, there's murder. Were there times in your research where you thought, okay, this is like this all has to go away? Like there's some kind of hoax, or this isn't actually like the, when I, I'm going to find the newspaper article that renders all of this moot at some point, right? You know, I started I started digging kind of deeper into the research and and the more I dug the the or the deeper I dug, I kept telling myself, no, this can't be true. No, this 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 couldn't have happened. And then I would go a little further and it's like, wow, that really did happen. And then you think that's kind of the end of it. And then, OK, well, here's a name that was mentioned. Let me Google this person and then. Oh my God, this part of it happened. And then Ray leaves New York and goes out West. And you think that's going to kind of be the end of it. And it kind of got even crazier at that point. So it just kept, it, it became this sort of self-perpetuating story <laughs> that is like, really? And, and so I was just fascinated by it. I, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. So yeah, it was great. I mean, what, how did you, I always wonder this, especially uh, when scandals happen during tabloid journalism, mm -hmm. how do you balance the contemporary newspaper accounts with what contemporary newspaper accounts considered good ethics? Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting question, you know, back back to the research to sort of answer your question. I was able to find the court records as as you know from reading it there's a Eva was involved in a criminal trial and then there was a ton of civil kind of action that was going on. And the civil action ended up going to the New York uh, State Supreme Court. And all of the testimony from her criminal trial was included in that. So 
I found it's about a thousand pages of courtroom documents from the beginning of the criminal action all the way through to her appeal being heard. Um, and, and once I had that, it enabled me to start kind of digging into different areas and put in, putting a, a chronological part of it together. Then when I got to the newspapers, the newspapers told the story sometimes quite truthfully, but at that time, I, I would say that there wasn't necessarily a lot of fact checking going on uh, <laughs> with newspapers. So I had to be sort of careful because some story, some newspaper articles would stick very true to the events that happened and some didn't. And so you had, I was always sort of trying to double back and make sure that what one newspaper was saying could at least be backed up by another newspaper or a different source or something because, you know, um, uh, there were 19 in New York alone, there were 19 uh, English speaking uh, daily newspapers. Yeah. And one of the biggest at the time was the New York World, which was started by Joseph Pulitzer. And Pulitzer's idea was a newspaper for the working man, for the guy who doesn't have everything in life. And he loved to tell those stories of uh, kind of rich people getting their comeuppance. If for, for, and so this story where you had Ray Hamilton, who lived a privi privileged life, was given everything in life, and Eva, his wife, who came from a... You know the backwoods of Northeast Pennsylvania. Her father was an itinerant logger and alcoholic. She had no education, so that constant sort of contrast of the haves and have-nots in the Gilded Age. Pulitzer, you know, lo I mean, he loved all of that, right? And his newspaper tried to take advantage of the contrast of those two sides of it to whatever degree he could. And a lot of the new other newspapers sort of followed along with that very same um, uh, mentality. But his, the world in particular really played it to its extreme. So um, some of the things you read, when, when I was saying earlier, I would say, oh, that can't be true. Actually, some of the things I read weren't true. They were just, <laughs> they were strictly just put in to sell newspapers. And I, document a little bit of that throughout the book but the book is as much a story of how the story played out in the press as it is the story itself well i think that there's a real i don't know if it's an abrupt increase in interest in the era this kind of overlap of the gilded age with tabloid journalism uh certainly that's a big part of hbo max's the gilded age sure. uh, there was the mrs frank leslie biography that came out earlier this year that also deals heavily in tabloid journalism. But why do you think that this is an era that we still find so irresistible? Is it just that wonderful confluence of money and bad behavior? I, I, I at the heart of it, that I think that's that's very much part of it. You know, it was <laughs> it was a. I mean, the names that we know today, particularly in New York, you know, the Astors and Fricks, and you know. Uh, Carnegie's and, and all of those names which are still attached to cultural institutions and names that just, you know, automatically provoke a response of, of money and, and wealth and privilege, 
those names are still very much around. And so stories that kind of draw them into it, I think there is interest. And it was a, it was an unprecedented time really in the country, I think, in terms of this massive ac accumulation of wealth, the industrialization of America, you have immigrants coming up from the bottom, you have all of these forces that are, are in New York in particular, meeting in a very small <laughs> land mass, um, but with millions of people. And naturally, all of these stories come out of it. But I think not only the wealth, but it was a very ostentatious display of wealth for the people who who had the most wealth. I mean, you couldn't build a bigger mansion than the next guy. You couldn't have more trappings in your home and artwork and clothing. And you, I mean, it was all on display. And, and I think that, I think that's a lot of what's, what still interests people. Well, and there's something to be said also for how relevant that era is to right now. Uh, sure. We don't have, we don't have that same level of tabloid journalism, but we certainly have social media which right. accomplishes the, the same ends. Yeah, and absolutely. we have we have influencers now rather than society. Right. Uh, but we're certainly yeah. seeing unprecedented ostentation when it comes to paying to go into space. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I think when you when you when you look now, you know, I it, people that we associate with a lot of money, if something not great happens to them. It's on the front page of the papers. It's, you know, it's stories that people tweet and conspiracy theories and all of that kind of stuff. And that was that was all going on with Ray and Eva, but there was only one outlet for it, and that was the daily newspaper. You know, if, if that story would have happened today, you know, the trial, her tr criminal trial took place in Mays Landing, New Jersey, which is a little town about 20 miles inland from Atlantic City. And what's interesting about it is the courthouse and the sheriff's house and the jail and everything that she, it's all still there. Oh, but if wow. that story would have happened today, I mean, you wouldn't have been able to get in, into town because satellite trucks would have blocked, you know, all of the main streets and news reporters would have been doing stand-ups and, you know, you, your Twitter feed would have been filled with, with uh, you know, talk about the, the Hamiltons and, but because that was the only outlet, it just it just was writ large in the, in the daily papers, and not just for a day or two, but for weeks, months, you know. And it would kind of ebb and flow a little bit, and you know, when it never left the papers really entirely for about three years, two years. But uh, when when it came back to its high points, you know. A, a, an article that ran a full page on uh, in a daily newspaper at that time, or not a full page, but a full column, uh, was um, was a big deal. I mean, they they commanded full page columns every day, stories that continued onto interior pages, which was fairly unprecedented. It was uh, it was quite a story from a contemporary point of view. I mean, with a story with this many twists and turns, and even when I just came across it uh, to see if I was interested in pursuing a, an advanced copy, just the log line was me going, what? Every sentence of the log line was like, what? There's more <laughs> culminating in the Snake River uh, uh, in every sense of the word culminate. Yeah. Uh, did you, was there anything that you just had to cut that you wish that 
could have stayed in? Um, you know, there there were I I went off on a on a few tangents within. There's a there's a in the beginning there's a part about baby farming, which were essentially illegal orphanages that um, I didn't I did not know about until I started doing the research for the book. And oh, see, actually, I'm a big I'm a big Mary Pickford fan, so I know all right. about that from her movies. Yeah. Um, so. Um, uh, there was more about that and it's kind of social, wider social implications. Uh, I wrote more about Warren and Wetmore, kind of their history when it got to the end part of the book of the fountain. Um, you know, some of the characters within I had written a little bit more about, I wrote a little bit more about Pulitzer than I put in the book, but I kept coming back to, you know, is this really advancing the story? I didn't want to, I wanted to keep it as closely as I could to Ray and Eva's story. And if I felt that I was just going too far off that, that it might interest me, but not, might not interest the reader or might not sort of advance the story, then I took it out. Um, so there's a little bit on the cutting room floor, so to speak, but, but, um, you know, I, it's self-editing. And then of course my editor had her own thoughts about it as well. And parts that I could beef up or parts that maybe we need less of. So, um, it was all that sort of push pull, but it, it could have been a longer book, but I don't think you would have learned any more about Ray and Eva and their story if I would have done that. So I tried to keep it as sort of lean and, and toe the line as I could. We've got to leave something for the other writers coming up to fill in the gaps. <laughs> Maybe it'll spur somebody to write about somebody else. I hope so. Well, and uh, before we wrap up, I just have to say you, you tracked down their, their, the daughter at the, at the heart of all of this and very gallantly uh, withheld uh, further information. Yeah, I did. It was, um, and people have been asking about it. You know, their daughter's name was Beatrice. Whatever happened to Beatrice? What became of her? And it was very hard to um, uh, to track her down. She changed her name at when she was basically a teenager. Uh, is is I don't know the exact date, but that's the that's where I have it sort of pegged. And after looking for her for you know, a little over a year. I kind of got to some place where I thought, hmm, this might be the connection. And I was able to get a contact of somebody related to her family um, and said, would any descendants, would anybody be interested in speaking? And the response I got back was that, you know, uh, Beatrice had a very uh, hard beginning to her life. She never spoke about it much. And you know, respectfully, the family would like to leave it that way. And so I, I respected that. Um, but the, the bottom line is she lived, by all accounts, a full life. She moved about as far away from New York within the United States as you can get. <laughs> um, and apparently had children and of her own and and lived a, lived a full and complete life. So good for her. And I, I didn't feel that it... it it was, uh, I should pursue it any further. No, I don't think that 
there might be something of interest to that, but I think that not including that as a postscript or as a coda yeah. uh, works. The book works because it is a finite story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, um, um, she gets a brief mention at the end, but then I, I, I'd leave her alone. Just, I, I mean, look at you unearthing forgotten scandals and solving mysteries. <laughs> Just, I'm trying. I'm out there trying. <laughs> uh, Bill Schaefer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks uh, for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. No, this, the pleasure is all mine. This is uh, a great book. Uh, you've done a really remarkable job uh, of infringing on our turf and <laughs> scrabbling through the graveyards of American scandals to find new ones. Oh, thanks uh, so, so thank you for doing the heavy lifting on this one for us. <laughs> it's my it's my pleasure. <laughs> Uh, guys, the book is out now. Highly recommend getting a copy. Uh, be sure to let us know if you do. We would love to hear your thoughts about it. And until next time, uh, I'm Mark Pikert. Thank you, Bill Schaefer. Thank all of you for listening. And tune in next week for another episode of Shocking Lurid Talk Tree. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye.